If you're new to faith, um, I not infrequently tell people that the way that we have been handling the inspired, infallible, and errant authoritative word of God for the past 28 years is to take a book of the Bible at a time and to go through it from beginning to end, however long that happens to take. Um, I have made it my practice believing that the Old Testament is also inspired, just like the New. You say, well, duh, that should go without saying. Yes, it should. But I assure you, it doesn't. At least not in actual practical outworking in many, many, many churches today. It's all but ignored. And so I've tried to go Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. I've had some variation in there over the years, but not a lot. So this morning we happen to be in First Samuel chapter 21. So again, if you are new to the church or newer to the church, understand that you're coming in, right? If you're on Netflix and you go to the episode or IMDB, you go to the episode guide, okay? I don't know what season we're in. I guess we could say season 28, but we are on episode, I have no idea. We're in 1 Samuel 21. We're going to get through six verses this morning, unless, and oh, how I hope, that the Lord returns instead. And then I don't have to worry about my conclusion. So that'll take care of itself. Where we've been over the past several weeks is talking about David, Jonathan, and Saul. Saul was the appointed king, appointed by popular acclaim of the people. God said, give them what they want. That's never a good thing. Jonathan is Saul's son, who becomes very, very uh, close best friend of David and uh David has spent some time in the last couple of messages trying to convince Jonathan that Saul is in fact intent on killing David. Finally, last week's text that we dealt with, Jonathan gets the clue and uh, they part not ways because that implies kind of something bad happened between them, but they realize for both of their safety, uh, David needs to take off and go basically in hiding. So David flees to the city of Nob, which for reference point today is probably around northern Jerusalem in uh, present-day Israel. And what begins now is a, well, I'll call it a formal game of hide-and-seek uh, with potential lethal outcomes, depending on who loses that game. So we pick up with 1 Samuel 21, beginning in verse 1. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has commissioned me with a matter and has said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you and with which I have commissioned you. And I have directed the young men to a certain place. Now therefore, David says, What do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. And so the priest answered David and said, There's no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated bread. If only the young men have kept themselves from women. David answered the priest and said to him, Surely women have been kept from us as previously when I set out, and the vessels of the young men were holy. Though it was an ordinary journey, how much more than today will their vessels also be holy? And so the priest gave them consecrated bread, For there was no bread there, but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. 
True confessions, and this happens more and more and more often than not over the past uh, couple of years anyway, where I just feel like my well is empty. I have dipped into that well of experience and looking for, for, you know, illustrative stories from real life, from my own personal experiences and all those kinds of things to punctuate whatever the particular theme or the point is that the scripture I believe is underscoring on that particular day, what have you. And so again, I come and I just look at the text and I, I start reading 1 Samuel. Again, I, we're in the habit here at Faith. I encourage everybody to get on an annual discipline of reading through the word. That means Genesis to Revelation for themselves because there is a profound uh, biblical ignorance out there on the part of not just the church, but on the part of the pastors. And I could give you objective, scientific, if you will, proof of that assertion. But that's another story. So at any rate, I come to this passage and I read it over and again I go, okay, Lord, what am I going to do besides read and then basically say just what's there in different words. That's not thrilling. <laughs> and I know it does real disservice to your word. And so there's just been this profound faithfulness of God in his breaking through my very limited humanity in coming to the text. And this passage just opened up in ways that I totally never expected, even having read through the word now probably 40 plus times over my Christian life. So Ahimelech in our text obviously would have known what David's reputation was. David's reputation was growing far and wide and he was gaining in popularity, which was part of the problem between he and King Saul who wanted to kill him out of jealousy. And so Ahimelech would have understood the accomplishments and all, even if he didn't know that David was the currently anointed king by God himself. But Saul was still acting in that capacity, and David had yet yet not, in God's timing, attained to the throne. So the fact, though, in this text that struck me was that, that Ahimelech is trembling at the thought of coming to meet David. And the reason that was intriguing to me is that I find David in all the characters of Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, I find him to be the most unlikely character, the most unlikely personage to strike fear into anyone. And this goes back to previous weeks from this book. And so I'll just say that I trust that we recall that David was the runt, if you will, of Father Jesse's whole litter. He had a bunch of other sons, and they were all these macho warrior types. And then there was David, who we are told again in the text previous that he was short. No cracks. And that he was humble. And he was a shepherd by trade, having no experience at all as a warrior until he takes down the greatest warrior of the whole Philistine nation named Goliath, and he does so with nothing but a sling and a stone, all past material. But the one thing that David had was a powerful relationship with the Lord of heaven and earth, and that makes all the difference in the world. One of the scripture memory verses that uh, I tackled with my kids when they were truly just toddlers Um, I was challenged by the pastor of my church at the time. I had no interest in pastoral ministry. I was in medicine and all that good stuff. 
But I got turned on to the idea of memorizing Scripture both for my own sake and for my children's sake. And one of the very first passages was Second Chronicles 16.9, which you've heard from me before. It is one of my favorites. It's a great reminder. It says, The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the ends of the earth that he might strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. The God of heaven committing himself to giving that one whose heart is completely his special attention. And so I want to make sure that we all understand that when we read that he might strongly support those whose hearts are completely his, it cannot be referring to that individual who has sinless perfection, whose heart is sinlessly completely given over to the Lord. Because if that were the case, this would be a promise that was empty for the whole of humanity, for we know what our state is. Thank you, Adam and Eve. And as we move along the timeline now of history with David, we're going to see firsthand that while David is in fact a man after God's own heart, he too has feet of clay. And because we know the future of this history, we will see David end up committing some of the most egregious offenses that a man can commit against heaven and earth. And yet David, throughout his life, stands out to the Lord, garnering that special kind of attention that the passage of Second Chronicles alludes to, getting the king of heaven's personalized attention, because according to God himself, David was a man after God's own heart. Now, I'm going to backpedal on something I said last week. At the very end of last week's message, I stated that the fundamental difference between David and Saul was that David had a living relationship with the living God where Saul had a ceremonial relationship with God going through the motions of the religious rituals. That's good. Not backtracking on that. What that means, though, is in what I talked about was that when David is called a man after God's own heart, it wasn't that David was always resoundingly obedient to the Lord, as I said, something pretty much along those lines last week. So that's what I'm backpedaling from. But rather it was that when David was called on his sin, David collapsed in brokenness. David collapsed in sorrow for offending the God of heaven. Saul, on the other hand, when he would be confronted with his sin, when he would get slapped around through the loving discipline of the Lord, or whatever it happened to be, Saul responded with anger and made excuses for his sin and then would ride off or trot off in his chariot or what have you in righteous indignation rather than repenting, which means turning from whatever the particular sin was as David does time and time again. So David escapes to Nob and he meets up with the priest Ahimelech whose name means in the Hebrew Ahimelech means uh, my brother, the king, or the king is my brother, or the king's brother. It can be very translated variously. Now, what I'm going to say for the next couple of minutes is of questionable value. How often have I ever said that? But there's certainly truth in it, a lot of truth in it. It comes right from the word. But you might say, okay, what was that all about? I'm not sure myself. But anyway, here it goes. So, I 
have this tendency when I am trying to exposit the word of God, especially in the Old Testament, to take particular meaning to the names of key people in the Old Testament in whatever the passage is that I'm working in. And so that's not something, by the way, that I, I was taught in seminary or anything like that. It's just that through my own time of reading through the word over the years, even before I had a long, you know, had no interest in seminary all that time, I discovered that in the Jewish culture of the Old Testament, that it was very important to them of what individuals were named and what they would name their children. And so I found it rather beneficial over, the, again, the many years to be mindful of their tradition because sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes that can produce real morsels of truth. In the culture, again, of the Old Testament, the expectant parents-to-be didn't tend to sit around thinking about, well, okay, we know we got this baby coming. We're going to have to name it. So what are the hip and the cool names of the day? Parents have done that. I think Barbara and I did that, at least with one of our kids. It was like, I don't know, it's kind of cool out there, whatever. You know, that was by number three or whatever. So, you know, you kind of lose your crew, whatever. And so anyway, just curiously, by the way, I looked up what were the most popular names for 2017. And I found it kind of comical. Because the Kyrians, you saw Lindsay was uh, just married yesterday. Her sisters, sisters, Sophia and Olivia, thank you, were the top two female names of 2017. Huh, go figure. But of course, Danny and Marianne named them many, many years ago. But anyway, all that is to say, you're like, yeah, really, what is the purpose of saying that? You're not going to find too many Aragorns or Frodo's or Skywalkers in the Old Testament, Okay. Sorry to disappoint, but it's not there. Now, when the Hebrew Maz and Paz were sitting around mulling over the names of their offspring, they often named their child as a description of some physical attribute or characteristic of that child. For example, with Jacob and Esau. Now, they were the twins. Esau was the older brother. Jacob was born right after him. Esau was named... Basically, red. That's what Esau means. It derives from Edom. And because when he was born, he looked this, he had this red, red, ruddy complexion about him. And so they said, hey, let's name him red. Or Esau. So they did. Well, then as Esau is coming out, his cute little brother, he'll always be a little brother, right? Problem with being that number two twin. He comes out with his hand holding right onto the heel of Esau. And so again, the parents see that and they go, wow, that's unique. You know what? We're going to name him Yaakov or Jacob, which means trickster, but not trickster in the sense of, here, watch this sleight of hand. I'll do this and make this thing disappear, but rather something more along the lines of con man. Now, not real flattering, but holy cow, who knew how prophetic, if you're familiar with Jacob and Esau, how prophetic naming him that would turn out to be in his life. At any rate, there was substance to what they named their children. Names tended to be meaningful. We can go to the book of Ruth. And in the book of Ruth, one of your key characters is Naomi. It would become the mother-in-law of Ruth. And Naomi's name, we are told in the text, means lovely. But she's following in faithfulness as a good wife to her husband, Elimelech. And they leave the land of promise. And they go outside the land of promise where basically all hell breaks loose against them. And Elimelech dies, 
And then Malin and Chilion, uh, uh, Naomi's two sons both die, which by the way, you know what their names meant? Puny and pining. Pining like, uh uh-huh, eh, eh. How'd you like to go through life named Puny? <laughs> All right. Or pining, meaning whiner. What's your kid? What's your name? My name's whiner. Why? I don't know. Okay. I mean, I'm just telling you, it, you know, it gets kind of interesting. Well, anyway, so Naomi is out. She gets the wake up call, losing her two sons. She's with Ruth now, who we won't go into. But anyway, they return back to Naomi's homeland. And the first person, I don't know if it was the first, but the first one recorded that she runs into, greets Naomi. She's been gone. Naomi. And Naomi says, do not call me Naomi anymore, but call me Mara, which means bitter because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. When the long-awaited birth, another example of the son of promise is born, the Lord, you remember, tells Abraham, you're going to have a son, the son of promise, and you will name him Isaac, which in the Hebrew is pronounced Yitzchak. That's how you say Isaac, Yitzchak, which, by the way, means laughter. Because the Lord tells Abraham, this son of promise is going to just fill you with joy such that he will make you laugh. And I find it coincidental that Yitzchak means laughter because with a stutter, it sounds like Yitzchak, like Popeye laughing. I don't think that was the intention, but that's just where my head went. No charge for that one. So Isaac's name, which means laughter, is also a play, though, on the reaction that both Abraham and Sarah would have, laughing out loud when the Lord tells them, I've got a surprise for you. Sarah, you're 90. Abraham, 100. You're going to have a son. Named him laughter? I was thinking about Barb and I in this situation. And what if the Lord came to me, even now, don't have to get to be 90 or 100, and he said, Bill Barber, I got great news for you. You're going to have a son. We'd have to name him Doc. <laughs> because that's how I would have reacted. They laughed. I would say, Doc. And I see how awkward that gets. You're out with your little boy in the street. Oh, he's so cute. What's his name? His name is Doc. <laughs> okay. Uh, by the way, what I said earlier about the Lord breaking... I'm not blaming any of this on him. Okay, this is all, I own all this. And sometimes a child's name wasn't just a word. It was an entire sentence trying to get the full import of, of, you know, what the reason for for naming him was. And one of my all-time favorite names comes out of the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah is told that his son is going to be a sign of great encouragement. He's going to be a sign of the coming victory of God's people. And so the Lord tells him to name his son Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And it tells us in Isaiah chapter 8 verse 4, why do I have you naming him Maher Shalal Hashbaz? It's because the boy... Before the boy knows how to cry out, my father and my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Samaria. Samaria. Meaning, I'm giving you a visible sign that my word is that you are going to come out of this smelling like a rose. Well, we find Maharshal al-Hashbaz means 
Hasten to the booty, quick to the spoil. He's in his name is an entire sentence. And so I got to thinking, well, what happened when he was 16 and old Maharshal Hashbaz runs down to the DNV, the Department of Non-Motorized Vehicles, and he wants to get a vanity plate for his chariot. I mean, that can be problematic, right? Imagine parallel parking that thing. Whatever. Can we go? I know. Stay around. Try the veal. I'll be here all week. Um, can we go back to, yes, please, let's go back to 1 Samuel. Okay, so David asks the priest for some provisions for he and his men who were on the king's top secret mission, except they weren't, were they? Okay, that was not true, but he had to tell Ahimelech something. And Ahimelech wants to accommodate David's request, but Ahimelech now is in a deep theological, ecclesiological dilemma. The only bread that he has that's available has been prepared, has been sanctified, which means set apart, it is holy, for use in the temple service. Which means, no, that's hands off. It was called, the bread for that service was called formally the bread of the presence. And it was restricted for use only by the priests. And they were allowed to eat from it, which is why we're there to make it. But wrapped up in the bread of the presence is all this symbolism. But there's something greater here than even the rule of the tightness of the sanctuary service, which the priest Ahimelech seems willing to consider. So Ahimelech asks about the cleanliness factor, as I'll put it to David. Remember earlier in the text? And that's all about, again, the rituals of cleanliness and who can go to worship, who can't go to worship, who can be in the presence of God, who can't. you got to go through all these rites. And all of that was pregnant with meaning in order to properly observe the temple rituals. So given now what we know from many, many messages over the years with me, the Old Testament stipulations for how to conduct the offerings and the services needed to be performed meticulously without deviation. Because again, in them were glimpses of the various aspects of God's character. In them were glimpses of certain aspects of God's holiness. And there was in them theological illuminations concerning the future Messiah. And so the details of these things were vitally important to keep untainted because as Jesus explained long after, they were explaining things about him long before the time. So isn't it interesting that given all of what we know about the Old Testament importance of these details, that the priest here, Ahimelech, is willing to make an exception to violate the rules for the sake of giving nourishment to God's anointed king, to who, at least as far as he knew, was on God's appointed mission. So, reading stuff like this might make us wring our hands a little bit. On the one hand, I've been telling you that there's no exceptions to the rigorous rules of the sacrificial service. And yet, here's an exception. So, hmm, 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 what to do, what to do. Well, those of you who are members of faith, we have these things called the plumb lines of faith. And they are basically a handful of basic elements by which 
Uh, we focus, we function, and we operate. Things that we call the non-negotiables by the way we do things. What is our interpretational axiom here at faith? Meaning, how do we rightly divide the word of truth? And that is the Bible interprets the Bible. So let's put that plumb line into play right now. So we go to way up into the New Testament to Mark chapter 23. And here's what we read. And it happened that Jesus was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read? Get this now. Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God at the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And then he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, continuing, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus is speaking about the exact passage we are dealing with in 1 Samuel 21. And so we have a New Testament perspective on the Old Testament setting, and it's no one less than Jesus who is helping us to in some way understand what was going on there and why. Meaning, Jesus' divine authority is exerted by Jesus over a situation that predates Jesus' own presence at that time by almost a thousand years. And that was that the law allowed for good deeds to be done on the Sabbath, even though technically they constituted work, which was strictly prohibited. And so although it was a technical violation of ceremonial law for anybody but the priest to eat the bread of the presence, Ahimelech gives it to David and to his men. And Jesus singles out this very event, which occurred about a thousand years earlier, as I said, stating himself that this is what the principle was that's being played out in First Samuel, and therefore, no harm, no foul. Wow. Okay. Uh, but wait a minute. Not so fast. Jesus was talking about the Sabbath. Remember, Pastor Bill, you tell us, keep your finger in the text. That's what Dr. Kaiser would always say to you. You got to keep your finger in the text. So you say the context Jesus was talking about was in the context of the Sabbath. You're right. Nothing about the Sabbath in 1 Samuel 21. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. Well, Remember what I said last week about the seeming insignificant details that we often read in historical narratives? Let's look at verse 6 more closely in 1 Samuel 21 again. So the priest gave David consecrated bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. Okay, 
I have read this, I don't know how many times. Like I said, I've read through the Bible, I think at least 40 times, probably more. So I know I've read that. And just, hot bread, yeah, whatever. That's kind of weird, hot bread. Who cares? Well, the bread of the presence by stipulated ceremonial rigor was to be replaced every week. David is hungry, as are his men, and we're told that the remaining bread, which the priests had not eaten, see, they were allowed to eat the bread, had been removed according to the worship protocol, had to be replaced once a week, and the bread, now that we read in the text, which was there, was still hot, meaning it had just been replaced, which means it could only have been done on the Sabbath. Hmm. But there's more. The name of the bread was called the bread of the presence. It wasn't called the bread of celebration. It wasn't called the bread of worship or the bread of the priests or the bread of sanctification. It was called the bread of the presence. But actually, that was only its translated from the Hebrew ceremonial name. In the Hebrew, that which is translated the bread of the presence, which is the lechem panim, literally means the bread of faces. Now, Jesus, centuries later, on the road to Emmaus, having been crucified, He's now risen. He hasn't gone back to the Father. He's still walking around the earth, and he's with some of his disciples who had no idea that they were talking to the risen Savior. And Luke tells us in Luke twenty four twenty seven. then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, which includes 1 Samuel, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself all in all the scriptures. Now, the bread of the presence consisted of two stacks of six cakes of bread. Two times six is 12. Basically universally agreed and accepted that the 12 was not coincidental. The 12 was for the 12 tribes of Israel. We carry it up into the New Testament. We get Jesus selecting the 12 disciples again, basically universally accepted as being symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. So what do we find out about this Jesus that we can learn from back then, from the bread of the presence. Well, the writer of Hebrews says, and there's so many different places I could have gone in the Old Testament, but the writer of Hebrews says, quoting Jesus, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. And he's not simply saying to his followers, momentarily at this point in time, today, existentially, I will not leave you, From this point forward, Jesus is implying his very eternality. Because we know that Jesus did not just come into existence when he was born of the Virgin Mary. In fact, Jesus is very clear about the matter. 
We go to the Gospel of John in chapter 8, verse 58. The Pharisees, of course, are whining once again and complaining and criticizing Jesus for making some of the claims that he's claiming. And they bring up their great patriarch, Abraham, and they're comparing Jesus, saying, well, you're no Abraham, and how dare you, and blah, blah, blah. When Jesus breaks in and says, I tell you that before Abraham was, I am. Well, wait a minute. Abraham lived thousands of years before Jesus. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. I am was the unique, distinctive name of God when he appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And Moses said, but but if I go back and I'm going to tell these all these things that, that you told me to tell, they're not going to believe me. Who shall I tell them sent me? And what does God say to him in the burning bush? Tell them I am sent you. Why not I was, or I will be, or I might be, or I could be? It's because I am has no time. It is eternal. And Jesus says before Abraham was born, I am the bread of faces. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one. God's eternal presence before his people always. And Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So we come today now to, we've come to the Lord's table and we've partaken of the bread and of the wine and we need to consider in light of all this today anew and afresh about the bread that is told us uh, that from Jesus about the significance of the bread in the gospel of John chapter 6. Beginning in verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes me will never thirst. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they were saying, Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say that I have come down out of heaven? And Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, He who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and what happened to them? They died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And that bread also, which I will give for the life of the world, is my flesh. And then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus answered again, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. So we go back to First Samuel and those small little details about baked flour and water are mind-blowing sermons about the ever-present, eternal God, past, present, and future. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The bread of faces, the lechem panim. All three have always been present. And they were meant to be eaten for the Savior, the coming Messiah, would be the bread of life. Now, if you're an astute listener, 
I have one more detail to clean up pretty quickly. When I read from the passage of Mark, the Markhan passage citing the event that we are in in 1 Samuel 21 has Jesus naming Abiathar, not Ahimelech, as the priest. And this is where those university professors step in and they go, you idiotic Christians. You think your Bible is special? It's full of contradictions. I mean, look right here. We go to 1 Samuel 21 and it tells us clearly that Ahimelech was the priest. And now we go to the New Testament. We got your, your so-called God in human form himself saying, oh, it wasn't Ahimelech. It was Abiathar. You see, this book is untrustworthy. And the unaware Christian sits there going, huh, huh, huh. Well, if that's wrong, what, what else is wrong? Ah. I've told our collegians, I meet with them before they go off to school. I've met with them once already, and I'll have one more group to meet with. Just because you don't have an answer doesn't mean there isn't an answer. And this one's not even a toughie. For you see, this whole thing keys on the interpretation of a three-letter word pronounced epi. Epsilon P. Iota, not Yoda. That would be unwise. Iota. It means, basically, it can be translated variously. It can be upon, it can be around, it can be above, it can be in the environment of, or in the arena of, or in the sphere of. And so what the text actually tells us that Jesus is saying is that this is what occurred during the time of Abiathar. And in fact, it was, Abiathar was Ahimelech's son. But why would he say Abiathar and not Ahimelech? Because Ahimelech, as we'll see in the next time we're together, is assassinated with 69 of the other priests. And the only remaining priest, the only remaining living eyewitness to talk about, to tell about, to testify, is Abiathar. And Jesus says, at the time... Of Abiathar, this is what happened. Not that Ahimelech was the one. There's no contradiction at all. Boom, bing, bang. If I could do it, I would drop it. But sound men wouldn't appreciate that. So in telling the story, Jesus anchors the time period to the one and only individual who was alive to have talked about it and recounted it and perhaps even helped the individual record it who made the recording, all of that. The Bible is the inspired, infallible, inerrant, authoritative word of God. You can stake your life, your eternal life upon it. Salvation, the rabid difference between King Saul and the soon-to-be King David. Saul was ceremonially religious. He was spiritual. But his heart was far from God. David had a relationship. And when he was confronted with his sin, doesn't he collapse and say, Oh God, we have so many of the Psalms which are David recounting his remorse and his sorrow and regret for the sins that he gets caught with and on. Salvation. Your life will 
emulate the heart and the mind of God if you are truly a Christian. Not perfectly, we know that. Boy, do we know that. But it will be there. It will be fruit. And if that is you, if you claim to be a follower of Christ today, we have our annual baptism service coming up in just a few weeks. And if you are a believer in Jesus and you have never been baptized as a conscious, sentient being as opposed to a little baby... Because baptism is a personal decision and public testimony of your faith in Christ. That's what is spelled out here. So if you have had baptism forced upon you as a little baby, you didn't know what you were doing. You didn't have any say in the matter. And so we encourage believers to follow the Lord in baptism. So what I'm saying is, and this happens every, well, all the time that I've been in pastoral ministry, people who have been Christians for many, many years and know better. And yet I come to find out they've never been baptized. Not even baptized as an infant. I go, why? Sometimes they have reasons that are as lame as can be. Usually I don't like to speak in front of people. (laughs) Buck up, buttercup. Jesus said, if you're my follower, get baptized. I think you can sign up in the back. If not, you can talk to Pastor Ben, Pastor Brent, talk to myself, whatever. We'll make sure that happens. And we make sure you understand what you're doing when you follow in believer's baptism. Are you a Christian today? Are you a follower of Jesus? Your eternal life is in the balance. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. All roads don't lead to heaven. One of the greatest greatest lies that Satan has ever perpetuated on the earth. All roads don't lead to heaven. Well, we're all trying to get to the same place. Yeah, that's right. That's why God gave us the road map. Well, but what about all those sincere people? I I am notorious. Notorious as recently as the last 48 hours, for getting lost in places I know like the back of my hand. It's just a gift I have. I make a right-hand turn absolutely as sincere as can be that it's the right way to go. And finally, maybe sometime later, sometimes a few minutes, sometimes an hour, I realize, hey, that was wrong. All my sincerity did not get me to the destination. Jesus is the only way. If you are not saved this morning, Talk to me, talk to Pastor Brent, talk to Pastor Ben. If somebody brought you today, they ought to be able to help you and tell you and talk to you about it. You need to put your life in his hands alone. Say, why, yeah, you know, nobody's guaranteed this afternoon, much less tomorrow or a week from now or five years from now. Do not tarry, do not delay. Your eternal life depends on it. Let me have you stand. Lord in heaven, I am blown away by the magnificence of your revelation to us. I'm blown away, Lord, by the fact that with all my warts and pimples, you nevertheless, for some reason, still choose to use me. In this capacity, thank you so much. Father, I pray. I pray for arrogant arrogant hearts to be crushed today under the weight of their sin that you would grant the gift of repentance 
and like David would come back with sorrow and grief over their sin and jump into your loving arms. I pray for those, Lord, who are tarrying and dilly-dallying, making whatever excuses or not making excuses at all, just not convinced. Father, in mercy and grace, I pray, draw them unto yourself to eternal life. And for those who are faithfully walking with you, O God, oh, strengthen the knees that are weak and draw them up close and tight and renew and revive and refresh them to the power of your name in the glory of the kingdom. Amen.